Hello world, I'm Ethan Hansen, and this is Quantum Computing Now, a podcast about quantum computing basics, news, and interviews. This is a new type of episode I'm trying out. Due to popular demand on Twitter, I'm going to call it a hybrid episode. In it, I go over news and a topic with someone who's doing interesting things in quantum computing. Let me know what you think. In this episode, I got to talk with Nathan Shema, who's the CTO at Unitary Fund. In this episode, we talked about his work with Unitary Fund, of course, science communication in general, and open versus closed source technology. Stick around to the end for a breakdown of some deep technical science. In this episode, I got to talk with Nathan Shema, who's the CTO at Unitary Fund. In this episode, we talked about his work with Unitary Fund, of course, science communication in general, and open versus closed source technology. Stick around to the end for a breakdown of some deep technical science. So, I have with me Nathan Shama, who is the CTO at Unitary Fund. Nathan, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Ethan. Yeah, so before we get into what you're doing with Unitary Fund and a couple of your other projects, could you give us a bit of background about what you did before you got into quantum and how you got into quantum computing? Yes, and thanks again for the opportunity to be here. Of course. So uh, I, I started by choosing physics as a major at the University of Milan, and, uh, and then I, I was able to, to go abroad with, with two scholarships uh, by the European Union Erasmus program. Uh, I went to Copenhagen and, uh, and, and Imperial College to write my master's thesis. Hmm. And that's the time where I really uh, got into quantum information. Well, thanks to a professor okay. and uh, an advisor in, uh, in Milan that uh, uh, I applied for to, to do my master's thesis. And also mm-hmm. to the research uh, landscape, I would say, in Copenhagen that is really strong uh, in quantum physics, of course. Yeah. And so that, that's, uh, that's how it got started. Then I did my PhD at the University of Southampton. Uh, I would say that's not really, and actually that, that's, that's, not really, that's not quantum computing. It's more like quantum light and matter or cavity quantum electrodynamics. And okay. it was exploring uh, these effects uh, in solid state devices. So these are called quantum wells or uh, other kinds of solid state device. Mm. And this was for my PhD. When I, when I moved to, to Japan for my, my postdoc at uh, Japan's National Lab, Riken, in Franco Norris mm-hmm. Group. And that was a great opportunity to really uh, experience a, a lively group where it's really a hub for quantum, quantum, informi- quantum technology in general, including quantum computing. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So you said you were looking at quantum electrodynamic cavities? Yes. So it's a cavity QED. It's uh, basically okay. this, uh, this field that, uh, I mean, we could even say that uh, was uh, pioneered by Feynman and other folks. Actually, okay. based, it's based on a really um, basic uh, processes in which uh, a photon is absorbed or emitted. So basically, even Einstein made the seminal work there. And, hmm. and as you know, the core, the core fact is that at its core, quantum physics can, can be used to encode information. 
And so mm -hmm. all these different theories of how light is absorbed and emitted by matter, atoms, molecules, or other artificial devices that, that we can create to try to recreate, for example, atoms with the properties that we like to tune, Mm -hmm. really uh, are the building blocks for all these quantum devices. And that can be used to process, store, uh, and, uh, and communicate uh, information that has a, has a quantum flavor. Hmm. Yeah, very interesting. So at some point after that, you transitioned over to working with the Unitary Fund. Uh, when did that happen? I guess, how long have you been there? Yes, yeah, so that, this is uh, very fresh. And it's uh, really time flies uh, as I'm really enjoying yeah. what's what's happening. It, uh, I started uh, in March, so a few months okay. ago, mm -hmm. and um, really at the beginning of uh, the intensifying of a of a COVID nineteen crisis. And, yeah. uh, and so I I was uh, moving out from 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 Japan, and I it's it's really like I, I would. I would say that I, I get to do something that I'm really passionate about, which is uh, working with open source software uh, mm -hmm. in quantum uh, technology and quantum science. And, and I was in, in Japan. Uh, I, as I said, I joined this group by Franco Norris, where uh, previous postdocs started a, a project that uh, I also heard you speaking about, which is QTIP, the quantum toolbox in Python. And yeah. I arrived there, I mean, this is a project that started in 2012, and I arrived there uh, at a time where um, there was space, let's say, for someone to help out with a project. And I was, uh, I was lucky myself to start working on a research project with a, with a student that was interning in the group who got me into open source development. So I was using open source software tools, but I, I never developed them. From, from scratch and and then mm -hmm. I and then we contributed a big chunk of our uh, own part of software to the Qtip library and then I got more into how how these projects work and how open source works and and more in general how open source helps science and so on and that, that's why uh, I, I got to know Unitary Fund. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, you mentioned Qtip that gives a great segue. Um, if you could talk a bit about Qtip and l like you said. Um, if people go back to my All the Frameworks episode from last year, I talked about Qtip a little bit, but I'm wondering if you could fill us in on the, the basics of it and then maybe some things that have changed since you've started working on it. Yes, sure. And again, let me mention, this is a really a collective project. And uh, this is yeah. what is most amazing about these uh, uh, open source projects. So it started around 2012. And... I really like that in your, your podcast you were, you were mentioning that this is a library to simulate what happens to quantum systems, including, mm -hmm. let's say, uh, models of uh, how quantum computers work. That's why it's used in this uh, so-called quantum industry, as well as in mm -hmm. research and in education. And mm -hmm. what Qtip is good at doing, really, it's uh, describe noise. And basically, even for folks outside of... Uh, quantum computing as insiders, but interested or geeks. It's really like <laughs> the Schrodinger, the Schrodinger uh, example, the Schrodinger cat, which is uh, dead or alive. Right. It's really based on this paradox that you need to open the box where it is contained and whether the, the, nano, the venom has, uh, has made, a, the poison has made the effect or not and, and kill the cat, you don't know. Mm -hmm. it. And this is really like, 
uh, a paradox that is uh, intrinsic in, in quantum physics uh, theory. And yeah. uh, it embodies uh, the, the problems with quantum measurement that, uh, as many know, have, uh, theorists argue about. And <laughs> the basic concept is that we are never dealing with isolated system because we could consider the universe as an isolated system. But in general, we can try to sketch out different isolated systems, for example, a computer, a piece of matter, and so on. But then mm-hmm. this system always leak informa- energy and, and, and so forth, information with other yeah. systems. And so you see that you really need to create a comprehensive framework where, where you can describe the time evolution of these systems, taking this into account. And what Qtip does, among other things, is really um, empowering the user to first have a playground where, where they can uh, really start playing with the tiny bits in a very simple, intuitive way, which is uh, typical of Python libraries. And the second yeah. thing is that it has a, a several uh, dynamical solvers that go from basic lean blood mass circulation, this is a bit for the, for the expert, to uh, other kind of like dynamical solvers that take into account uh, interaction with uh, structured bath in the, in the environment and so on, to really different kinds, for example, uh, stochastic uh, mass circulations or even stochastic trajectory-based Monte Carlo sampling and so on. And to come to the second point of, of your question, it's like the last, what's been going on in the, in the past few years in, uh, in Qtip is really that uh, the core was really uh, set by Rob Johansson, Paul Nation, and some of the early developers, uh-huh. uh, such as Chris Grenade, Arne Grimso, Alex Pitchford. But uh, more recently, let's say there was uh, this new generation of, of uh, developers that were on one side, helping maintain the library because you always need to be, you know, the cutting edge. Be, you know, there's a, right now there's a, <laughs> last week there were some breaking changes by SciPy 1.5, which is one of the dependencies of Qtip that uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it's breaking something. So you always need to to be able to ship it to different platforms and with the, with the latest tools. And on the other hand, mm-hmm. there is new techniques that you can you can try you can get into the library. So what I did with Shanwaz Ahmed was to develop a package that at first it was a package itself, was using as Qtip as a dependency, but now became Qtip.pix, the permutation invariant quantum solver. And this really, oh. when you have some symmetries in your system, you're able to describe, let's say, a bunch of qubits uh, with noise, even with local noise, that usually increases exponentially and not even two to the n, like four to the n in the best case where you use wow. lean blood dynamics. So up to 10, 12 qubits, you, you cannot really do anything with a, with a usual ma- machine. But if you make use of some symmetries of the space that are t- that depend on the fact that uh, we are lucky with some symmetry objects in um, some objects that define symmetries of SU2 uh, algebra, uh, basically you have... S- a, a computational space that grows only polynomially. So you can really investigate hun- what happens to hundreds of, of qubits or two-level system or spins, however you would like to look at. So this is one thing that we, we did, this permutation invariant quantum solver. And then there is other directions that are really interesting. Like, first of all, <clears throat> as someone put it, um, it's actually Michael Gortz that developed the Krotov library, which is a method for uh, optimal control. It does use Qtip and some chunks of Qtip, for example, the basic uh, feature, which is uh, uh, this object, which is called the, the Q object, 
which is mm-hmm. everything like density matrix, a super operator, a state, a cat, a bra. It's a, it's a Q object. Uh, it uses this, this object uh, um, and it uses Qtip at the center of a constellation of more specific libraries that do more specific stuff. So it's a bit like AstroPy, but for quantum optics and quantum in general. Another very interesting feature, in my opinion, it's like what has been developed since last year um, in a Google Summer of Code uh, uh, project that was uh, done by Boxley, which is uh, uh, revamping the quantum information process uh, um, uh, module in Qtip and the package. And mm-hmm. as you mentioned also in your, your survey, Nova is, uh, Qtip was, uh, was started as a project in 2012. And at that time, there were no comp- quantum computers connected to the cloud. There were no quantum computers besides in some labs. Right. And, and now we need to take this into account. We need to take into account that folks are not only running simulations on, let's, as we say, call them classical uh, computers, but they sometimes want to compare what is happening with uh, real devices. And at the same time, there is uh, standards that have emerged, such as the Open CASM and CASM standards, as well as mm-hmm. very, um, very successful company-backed libraries such as Qiskit by IBM, Cirque by Google, and so forth. So basically mm-hmm. what Boxy has done, it's really, um, first of all, try to give models of noise and uh, um, pulse shapes that it's really, um, let's say, native to the idea that Qtip has all these dynamical solvers. So basically in Qtip now you have something that it, it has a pulse-level description of quantum circuits. And this is very powerful because then you can tap in into all these powerful uh, dynamical solvers. And on the other hand, this is something that is uh, being brought forth by one of the Google Summer of Code students that uh, are joining this year. It's um, it's really inter- make, make the quantum information processing module and the quantum circuits written in Qtip um, convertible with... Uh, OpenCASM and other standard uh, circuits and libraries. So really making these a more connected uh, piece of work. Interesting. Yeah, so you're talking a lot about open source, um, and I love open source as well. Um, Do you think there's a a place for closed source software inside of quantum computing and maybe quantum uh, theoretical and experimental physics in general? Yes, and I mean it, that really comes to the to the point. Not everything should be open source, in my opinion, mm-hmm. and uh, it really depends what you want to do with your piece of software. What is your goal? And there's also a lot of things that needs to be considered, like IP and uh, company secrets and so yeah. forth. I mean, right now the leading uh, corporates are betting on open source. Not all in quantum, I would like to say, because it's really become a way to reach a worldwide community of users and developers and maintainers. So, uh, True. There's also uh, a lot of thoughts about the maintainability of these, uh, of these approaches. And on the other hand, I mean, there's, there's startups that uh, are mainly developing what they do closed source and also in quantum. And that, that's perfectly fine. What I would like to say is that open source software, um, it's perfectly, well, it's specifically aligned with the aim of uh, open science and knowledge that basically should be accessible to all. 
Right. And I think that's a, that's that's a winning point for you. Yeah, definitely. It's a lot easier to you know validate experimental results if you can just pull down the source code from GitHub um, and run it on your own machine. So makes sense. Um, going back to the unitary fund, um, you mentioned that there are sort of two different parts to unitary fund. I think the part that most people hear about is the community projects, um, but then there's also in-house research. Uh, could you tell us a bit about in-house research first? Yes, sure. So the unitary fund is uh, this nonprofit based in the U.S. It's actually a charitable organization, and we do uh, two things, as you said. One are community programs. And the other thing is uh, that where we try to foster and projects that can be like personal projects, larger projects uh, that we think are useful for the, for the quantum tech ecosystem. And most times these overlaps with open source, as I said, but it doesn't always have to be. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, when we, well, this is one hand, on the other hand, when we don't find what we would like to fund in the ecosystem, we, we try to propose it and to build it ourselves. So, Right now, we we started a, a, a say a division within Unitary Fund, which is called Unitary Labs, and I'm okay. joined there by uh, Will Zhang, uh, founded, who founded uh, Unitary Fund, uh, mm-hmm. Ryan LaRose, and Andrea Mari, and they're really amazing co-workers to work with. I'm learning so much. And what we do is basically awesome. we're doing research right now on a DOE-backed. Um, ARQC project on um, error mitigation. And, and we do so by doing research, taking, taking an angle that is not that of typical uh, academic groups, I would say, because as we say, we are experts in developing open source software. And so we're, we're building a tool chain for, for uh, exploring error mitigation techniques and developing new ones. And so that's the way we intrinsically are doing the new research. Yeah, that's really interesting. I like the the idea of uh, if you can't find it somewhere else, build it yourself. Um, in in robotics, we have a saying that uh, goes, steal from the best, invent the rest. And I think yes. it applies a little bit here. Um, yeah, so... Another thing that you do with Unitary Fund, um, it's not all open source technology uh, that you're funding. You also fund a little bit of, I've seen some science communication things, and I know that's something you're passionate about. So uh, tell me a bit about where science communication fits into quantum and how that how that mixes with the fact that um, you, you said earlier, um, before we hopped on here, that quantum technology is sort of a special deep tech field where it's a mix of rock solid science and hype and wishful thinking. So how does that all, that all come together? Yes. I think that uh, it's uh, important to communicate with uh, greater society, what we're doing as scientists. And this is especially true in, uh, in quantum technologies and quantum computing, which uh, are also at the technology transfer step, which there's a lot of efforts, a lot of uh, um, resources, both from public and private sector, put into trying to make this, uh, this is a useful technology for, for, for humanity. Mm-hmm. And 
science communication, in my opinion, it's now a crucial part of, uh, of research. Now, I mean, many journals, even top-level journals, uh, ask you to have kind of like a, a popular science summary of, of the work that you're, that you're proposing to, uh, to publish oh. there. Because it's, Interesting. It's, so, it's, so important to, it's so important to communicate what is happening, what is the impact of uh, what, what we're doing. And to be fair, I mean, this, is, this doesn't mean that all research should be applied. I don't think this at all. I think that we should right. be investing and making it uh, feasible for researchers to do basic science and not to have all this overhead with, um, you know, bureaucracy and uh, filling out forms for bureaucrats <laughs> at uh, universities and uh, uh, funding agencies and so on. And that's why I think... The, the programs that we're running at Unitary Fund are really addressing a request of academic uh, of academic um, community. So with a micro-grant program that has no strings attached, anyone can apply to as minimum bureaucracy, basically zero bureaucracy, and uh, it start, get started in a day or so. And uh, yeah. with other projects that we're, we're, we're starting, I think we're really addressing this point because researchers are really a bit exhausted in the, the usual academic setting. And to come back, sorry, a bit to your question about scientific communication. Yeah. I mean, Unitary Fund has, uh, has also funded uh, the Q-World, uh, Q-Cousins uh, network, which uh, mm-hmm. enhances inclusion of uh, uh, women, as well as running workshops in parts of the world where quantum computing uh, and quantum science never arrived uh, in Eastern Europe. And I think in general, I would say though, what Unitary Fund is looking for, for example, if you would like to propose uh, a micro-grant idea, it's anything that is as a techie flavor. So it's not just something that could be funded by other uh, funding agencies that, uh, you know, may have more uh, more firepower, maybe... Maybe already there, but it's really like ideas that uh, sometimes you know are misfits in the, the current academic landscape. It's yeah. not it's not it's not just focus on, on 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 papers, but I think that this approach that is not really putting this pressure on researchers and this is one thing that open source does. It's, it it tries to collaborate to make projects collaborative, then has a really positive effect on the long term. So right now. Out of the, of the projects that have been funded as microgrants at Unitary Fund, there are several papers that have been accepted, over, over six papers that have been accepted in uh, peer-reviewed journals. Wow. Yeah. And I think a question that a lot of people might have is, if I'm thinking about applying for a microgrant from Unitary Fund, should I do it? Like, I don't, I'm not sure if they would want to hear this or not. Do you wish that you got more uh, more requests for grants or fewer requests for grants? So I think it's, uh, we'll see, very increasing. So to, okay. so first of all, if you want to know more, go to unitary.fund and basically it's all contained in one page where there's some frequently asked questions that uh, can give you an idea of what you could do with, uh, with your project, what projects we're looking for, and also there is like a section of the grants made. And I mean, we funded more than uh, 
25 projects. Some still need to be announced. I think we're only 22 that wow. were announced in 14 countries, uh, four continents, and I said six publications. And uh, I'm retrieving some data from GitHub APIs. I mean, 11 became open source libraries, uh, collaborative uh, projects with more than uh, uh, 30 contributors. And so, of wow. course, open source software, it's, uh, it's strong. And I think it's amazing that all this happened on just... Uh, $40,000. Because if mm -hmm. you look at what's the cost of a PhD student, uh, like the gross uh, uh, cost for a university of a PhD student in Northern America, I mean, it's probably the, you need probably to double that. And right. I think this is, this is really a metric that it's giving an insight on the fact that this is a, a place where you can invest. So if you, first of all, if, you, if you're a prospective sponsor, please speak with us because we really make no you can no, but I'm, I'm serious of this i really think yeah, that yeah. this is the area in which you can make most impact maybe it's not direct oh, yeah. but then it has the community and the people that you bring in the community and the trust that you give is not really just the 4000k that they get in order, which is which is fine especially if, if you don't have to account everything how you spend it with this crazy bureaucracy that is now at some universities but It's really like the mentorship, the trust, the boost of energy that this program gives to people that uh, uh, then gain more confidence in, in open source software developing. And so this is really like be passionate. Can be like a, can be like a personal project. Can be a collaborative project. It, it, it doesn't matter. It can be like I would even see this as almost like a pre-seed. So can even be like a, a blueprint of an idea over you know quantum sensor and. Uh, hmm. And so on. And in terms of how many applications we get, uh, I'm, I'm really uh, excited by the fact that we just got on board a team of advisors that volunteer their time to help make sourcing and reviewing application more sustainable. Because yeah. uh, so we we just got on board 15 members of a of a quantum technology community. Uh, please, there is a blog post about it on our Unitary Fund website. And they really have all sorts of experience coming from national labs, universities, startups, corporates. They have uh, uh, made their own projects. They're sometimes uh, micro-grants uh, uh, awardees and that have, uh, that have uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, that have um, graduated from the, from the program. And they, they have all, all kinds of different backgrounds. And they're helping us... Uh, Uh, and we are reviewing together these applications, and then we follow up uh, the, the grantees uh, with mentoring and uh, suggestions, and sometimes even first-hand contribution to the projects. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, I think that's that's an interesting point in that other grants might be, you know, one time you get the money and that's it, and then they check up a bit later to make sure you're you're doing. But then this is. It's like you are like you're talking about. It's a community building as well. You have access to these people with deep technical knowledge who are, you know, willing to volunteer their time and take a look at projects and help. I think that's super cool. Yes, and what I would like to say is that sometimes even when we cannot fund some projects because they don't perfectly uh, make a, a match with what we have in mind, it's really like sometimes even. A, Um, a matter of matchmaking or making people aware that there is this opportunity or this other folk doing something 
or there's the Quantum Open Source Foundation running a remote mentorship pro- program and so on. And so I, I really think that this is having a positive impact to anyone that is applying to this, uh, to this project. So probably like <laughs> in the next few weeks, uh, we're going to be flooded with applications and advisory board. It's going to hate me for that. No, but actually <laughs> do, do apply and, and have a look. And uh, Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, we'll have a link to Unitary Fund's website in the description. If you don't want to click on that, of course, it's just unitary.fund. Um, but yeah, so if we can switch gears a little bit here, go a little bit more technical. Um, you told me that you studied cooperative or that you studied cooperative effects in many body quantum systems out of equilibrium. Um, could you break that down for me? Because I understand the word, uh, the, each word individually, but not taken together. <laughs> yes. So let's start with something simpler, which is okay. at least, I mean, uh, physics majors or even anyone who's taking a physics course, it's uh, acquainted with uh, thermodynamics, which is basically the study of uh, of energy, heat, vapor, and how this energy can be transformed in usable work. Mm-hmm. And a crucial aspect, aspect of equations that we study in that framework, I mean, I'm not talking about quantum here, right? It's like really how right. many molecules and many body really, it's another way, it's a fancy way to say that there is many molecules, a lot of stuff going on. So we're, we're not focused on one qubit or many qubits so, okay. or, or many particles. In thermodynamics, what you usually study in the equations that describe potentials and energy landscape and so on, they work for closed systems. So systems that okay. are isolated from the environment. And this is mm-hmm. usually a good approximation. You say, I have a box, so, you know, it's a typical uh, problem that you get. I have this block, box with this gas, the, uh, the walls of the box are compressed, what is the pressure, and so on. Right. Now the point is, when, but this is not really what happens in our everyday experience. Just think of when you're, you know, you're uh, putting on some, some water to to boil your pasta, <laughs> make an Italian example. So, so there's, there's heat coming from, from the stove and then the water is starting to heat up and then there's a water vapor that is getting out of, a, of the pan and at some point, if you put the lid, it, it will start uh, you know, getting out some, somehow. And this is not a closed system. This is what we could call in this framework a driven dissipative system because there is a dry energy that is put in by the fire, mm-hmm. it's leaking out with uh, water vapor, and at the same time, at the same way, we could call this a system outside of equilibrium because we're always pumping energy into the system. But at the same time, you you know that there is uh, at some point, and, and uh, let's say that you keep this water boiling for too long, you you mm-hmm. will dry out you will dry out the, the pan. There will be no water left. But if right. you keep pouring some water inside your uh, uh, your pen, it, you will reach some kind of like dynamical steady state at uh, which, you know, the, the, the level of water is always constant. There is always some fire uh, hitting the, the pen and then there is always some vapor leaking out. And so this is, this is a very typical um, scenario also in quantum mechanics and quantum information theory. Exactly for the kind of reasons uh, we were kind of like summarizing before, because when you open up these cavities, when you look at the Schrodinger cat, you're always uh, 
perturbing your system and you're always uh, in some way uh, making it not isolated from the from the environment. Mm -hmm. So what I do study, mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's uh, what I've been studying also with open source tool, tools, it's really what are the peculiar properties of these systems that have different mathematical representations compared to closed systems. So getting a bit more into practical terms. When you, when you have an energy landscape that you can fully describe yourself, like a Hamiltonian, and you can, mm -hmm. start, you can study the eigenstates of this, of this system. When you have a dynamical system that is open, that is driven dissipative, you may be studying a matrix or uh, something that has a matrix representation, if you're lucky, that, that has very different also mathematical properties. And so you cannot always speak about eigenstates, but you, can, you cannot even speak about the ground state, which is the, the state of, uh, of no excitation, but you can, you can speak of something called like a steady state. <laughs> and the interesting part is that, especially in quantum mechanics, you have effects that are really non-classical, such as entanglement, and the superposition effects. These are cooperative right. effects that then are counterbalanced by dissipation. And it is interesting to study the interplay between Hamiltonians, for example, or even noise that induces some uh, um, entanglement and correlations and other kinds of noise that dissipate and uh, are really detrimental to uh, the persistence of these persistence of these um, of these uh, effects, and so for example, one 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 question that we ask is like, can we achieve steady states quantum systems that have uh, specific quantum properties? And this is also interesting for quantum information applications because that means that even if subject to very strong and continuous noise, your system will be in some sort of a subs ma subspace, mat think of a mathematical subspace that mm -hmm. is uh, free from really uh, dampening the coherence that then will affect uh, its internal quantum properties. And so we can play with properties of a system, some of its symmetries, uh, to try to engineer mm -hmm. such uh, uh, steady-state properties. Interesting. Okay, so... Let me try to recap, and you tell me if I got this right, at least sort of right. So you're studying cooperative effects in many-body quantum systems out of equilibrium. So the cooperative effects is things like um, entanglement and superposition, things that are non-classical um, in quantum systems with many particles, so not just like one atom. And the the states or the the systems are not necessarily in their ground state. They might be in a steady state, but at the very least, they're not in their ground state. Is that about right? Yes, that that's perfect. Okay, awesome. Well, that was super informative. Um, and while as we're going to wrap up the show here, could you tell me what you think is the biggest problem in quantum computing moving forward? Uh. <laughs> I could say living up to expectations could be one thing that <laughs> mind right now, but no, that, that's a bit too sarcastic. Let's say that um, I I truly think that where we're putting our focus right now at uh, Unitary Fund with uh, error mitigation, which is uh, trying to reduce errors for noisy intermediate scale quantum computing uh, devices, it's really mm -hmm. fundamental. And so the challenge right now, it's... Uh, 
come up with a not so long-term but kind of short-term strategies to prove things that uh, so far have not been able we're not being able we're not we've not been successful with and i think that uh, one way of thinking of this is like for example with uh, sometimes it's uh, i think it's a problem of domain knowledge so it's uh, yeah. uh, in error mitigation we're applying a lot of post processing techniques that have a part that is absolutely not quantum it's like uh, akin to you know curve fitting to some regard or or sampling yeah. distributions and these are problems that are uh, tackled also in other fields of, of, of quantum. So this is this is one of the, of the main challenges. That I would say it's uh, it's it's this one. It's try to find application for noise intermediate scale quantum devices. And um, yes, and, and the other thing is that we're seeing we're seeing uh, this field change more rapidly maybe than expected with regard to the interest that uh, the private sector uh, is having. So we're yeah. seeing more and more researchers uh, being sp- uh, spinning out from you know the, the standard academic um, academic uh, let's say one would say in in, in, uh, in Latin cursus honorum. So you know, and this is because there is some pyramidal schemes intrinsic in academia that don't make this uh, so so easy. And so now we need to define better boundaries, and we need also to define you know what. Should, for example, a quantum computing uh, vendor do, and what should uh, a quantum computing experimental uh, researcher at a university do? So maybe they should focus on slightly different problems. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So then the last question is: What is the biggest promise in quantum computing, or something that you think has the biggest potential to change the world, however many years down the line that comes? Yeah, I I'm not good with uh, long-term, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, guesses. Again, I will stick to the to the to the short term. I really okay. think that open source, it's uh, well, it is driving to some extent a lot of these applications. And I think that the impact of open source uh, software development, also you know, even for education in classes that will embrace not only numerical methods but open source software development, scientific, how open source can empower science and quantum science. I think that the, this is one of the, of the key aspects that is exciting me the most. Yeah, definitely. All right. Uh, Nathan, thank you for coming on the show. Where can people find out more about you and what you're working on? Yes. Check, check out unitary.fund uh, uh, website. And, uh, and there you do find more information about myself, my teammates, and even our personal websites all right awesome thank you it's been super informative awesome interview and awesome talk thanks for coming on the show thank you Ethan. thank you very much all right so last episode it was too good to be true you know last episode i got corrections and questions this i have neither questions nor corrections um, so if you have questions or corrections, please send them to me. Um, I also, in that previous episode, said the first five people who gave me feedback would get a code for a free quantum computing for developers by Johan Vos, who was my interview guest in that last episode. Um, that So those samples are still available. Um, if you want to send me your feedback or questions, you can send it to me on 
minds.com or email. Um, I'm at minds one Ethan Hansen, and on email, I'm one Ethan Hansen at protonmail.com. Links, of course, in the show notes as always. In the show notes, of course, I have a link to Unitary Fund's website, which was really the only thing that Nathan said that you should really go look at. Um, of course, from there, you can find more about him and his teammates, like you said. Um, but again, that's just unitary.fund. If you'd rather click a link, I get it. <laughs> I just want to thank Uncle Brian and Aunt Lori, also cousins Sierra and Aaliyah, for being patient with me while they were guests in our house and I was recording this episode. Um, if you'd like to support me so that I can make more and better episodes, please support me on Anchor. There's a link in the show notes for you to do that. If you want to send me some IOTA, reach out to me, and I'll get you an address to send that to. Quantum Computing Now is produced in partnership with thequantumdaily.com. The Quantum Daily aims to cut through the technical jargon and the overhyped fluff pieces to deliver quality, comprehensible content about quantum computing. If you enjoy this podcast and would also like text resources, be sure to check out thequantumdaily.com, which I've linked to in the show notes. Thank you for listening, and I'll have the next episode out when I get to it.